All right, and welcome on my next guest. We've got college basketball legend, University of Maryland legend, longtime NBA player, longtime broadcaster, Harvard grad. He's done it all, Mr. Len Elmore. Len, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Zach. Good to be with you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. How, how have you been managing that the world is a crazy place right now? Um, just pretty much staying low, laying low. Um, you know, I have a house here in, uh, in suburban uh, Maryland, outside of D.C. and Baltimore, uh, oh, cool. in the country. So I stay pretty isolated. Every once in a while, I'll get back to New York because of business, et cetera. But, uh, you know, here uh, with a bit of a land buffer, get stuff delivered. Obviously, my internet connection is working reasonably well. <laughs> and uh, that's all we need in these days and times, yeah. I guess. I'm actually from Baltimore County. I grew up in Owings Mills. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a bit south of you. I'm right between uh, D.C. and Baltimore, oh, Howard cool. County. Oh, cool, cool, cool. That's awesome. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about your early career. So I saw you went to Power Memorials. Did you ever run into a guy named Lou there by any chance? No, but uh, certainly ran into his ghosts. Uh, I'm, <laughs> five, I'm five years uh, behind him, and you know, obviously I was the next big man, if you will, to follow. Um, hard act to follow, obviously, but you know we did okay as as a team. See, when I got to power, I had never played basketball before. Wow, I was a sophomore in high school, but I learned pretty well to the point where I was a high school all American my senior year, and we were high school national champions uh, in 1970. So you know we were the best team, best high school team in the nation. That's awesome. But um, you know I'll never I'll never be able to say that I even got close to who he was. That's wild. And then how did you end up at uh, College Park? Uh, well, I got recruited just about uh, by everyone. I could have gone anywhere I wanted to because I did pretty well academically. And, you know, obviously I was a pretty good high school basketball player. But, you know, uh, Maryland just uh, kind of separated itself because of where it was located. Um, obviously between two metropolitan areas like Baltimore and Washington, but still away from home. Um, I loved uh, Coach Giselle and Coach George Raveling, who were um, responsible for recruiting me for the most part. And, um, you know, Maryland had never had any real success in basketball. One time in 1958, they had uh, a great season, but beyond that, never really a winning season. And I wanted to be a, a part of something uh, and start something new historically. And I think that kind of played out because people still remember our teams from way back when um, we didn't get to the national champion in promised land, but um, you know, we uh, acquitted ourselves very well during our era. Do you think it's a mistake that they left the ACC? Yeah, in, in some ways, but that, that's long gone now. The, the toothpaste is out of the tube. Um, I think that being a founding member and, and also having integrated the ACC, both in football and basketball, Maryland had a legacy that, you know, they could be proud of, and, and they were innovative and forward-looking, and we could still probably add that to the ACC as it is now. But, you know, they're in the Big Ten now. There's nothing you can do. Um, it certainly makes, you know, my teams and, you know, our history, uh, you know, status uh, essentially uh, persona non gratis since we don't have any Big Ten history. Uh, so we're kind of in limbo. Who was your biggest rival when you when you were playing for them? Uh, no question, NC State. Interesting. Uh, NC State had David Thompson, Monty Tao, Tom Burleson. You know, we battled them in two consecutive ACC tournament finals. Um, and, you know, obviously lost to them both in 
close games, one by one point and the other in overtime by three. My sophomore year, we lost to Carolina, which was the number two team in the nation. But here's a, a young team that started out. We got to the ACC finals three years in a row, just couldn't get over the hump. And in those days, um, the only team, we were only a one-bid conference. So the winner of the conference went to the NCAA tournament. Fortunately, our junior year, NC State was on probation. So we clinched uh, going to the tournament after winning the semifinals. Did, did Cole Fieldhouse have AC back then? Uh, no. <laughs> and, and, and it felt like it, too. But, you know, we love Cole Fieldhouse. I think we played over 70 games there in, in our career, our three-year career, and only lost two games uh, at home, both in NC State. That's incredible. And so what was your draft process like? Uh, I was uh, drafted in uh, the ABA in my junior year, I believe, and uh, those rights were traded in my senior year. I was in the first round then uh, to the Indiana Pacers, and the NBA, it was uh, Washington at the time, they were called the Bullets, who drafted me, I think, 12 or 13 uh, in the first round of the NBA. Uh, it certainly wasn't anything that – it wasn't the pageantry as it is today. I was actually visiting my girlfriend, who was my wife, uh, over in France. I was on the, uh, the southern coast of France when I got the call about 3 o'clock in the morning. Wow. An irate bed and breakfast owner uh, <laughs> came and banged on my door and said I had a long-distance call. Wow. And it, it was, yeah, it was, my, it was my attorney telling me that I'd been drafted That's by, awesome. uh, by the bullets. Yeah. So, th- so how soon did, did they say, hey, enjoy your time in France, or did they say, hey, we need you back here? Um, they knew when I was coming back. Uh, oh, cool. The problem was, problem was that the Wizards, you know, did the Bullets at the time didn't make a, an offer that was uh, anywhere close to what the Pacers offered, and so I wound up uh, taking the Pacers' money and um, you know playing for Indiana for five years. And then, and then, when 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 they were part of the ABA, do you remember the first time you matched up against Marvin Barnes? Oh yeah. Um, we matched up several times. Marvin and I actually became pretty good friends our cool. senior year. Uh, well, let me go back. Our junior year, Providence beat us in the um, in the NCAA tournament in the Elite Eight, uh, kept us from going to the Final Four. Uh, Marvin and I matched up pretty well, although it was Ernie DiGregorio that was the difference in that game. Uh, but Marvin and I, in, in those days – after the season was over, instead of having the NBA combines, they had a series of tournaments. Um, the NABC coaches uh, game, they had the Pizza Hut Classic, and they had the Aloha Classic in Hawaii. And it gave NBA scouts a chance to, to watch guys play. And for some reason, they roomed Marvin and, and myself on all three, of those, uh, all three of those games. So we got to be pretty good friends. That's and, awesome. Uh, Obviously matched up with him in the ABA. I must say that uh, my career high uh, in the ABA had uh, 35 points, I believe 19 rebounds against his Spirit of St. Louis team, uh, and he was guarding me. But, you know, I'm sure if God willing he were alive today, he'd probably have some stories about me. Do you think he's one of the more overlooked players in the history of basketball because it's been much time in the NBA? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, he was a, Marv was a terrifically oh, fantastic. built player, physical, uh, outstanding rebounder. He could score. Um, you know, he had a, a reputation for being, you know, a nasty guy. But, you know, I, I had a reputation myself, so we got along pretty well. 
But he he was a he was had a heart of gold underneath though. Yeah. People, you know, with people that he knew and liked. That's why we got along so well. When you first heard the story about the time he chartered the plane to play the Squires and showed up late with women and hamburgers, were you surprised or were you like, no, that's no, <laughs> no, look, look, and and I used to call them, people call them bad news, and I <laughs> I dropped the bad and I just called them news. Uh, but but you know, news that's the kind of guy he was. Unfortunately, didn't have the leadership. You know, here's a guy that had double digit telephones in a two bedroom apartment. So you know, he just uh, he just splurged. <laughs> Um, yeah. Because he had the money. Was was it true George McGinnis was on the Pacers your rookie year? Yes, uh, George. George was LeBron before LeBron. Um, you talk about that build, uh, the ability to handle the ball and create for other people as well as himself. Um, he's uh, could shoot the three, soft hands. Uh, he's he was probably one of the best players that that I ever played with. Uh, you know, and played against at some point. Uh, and George is a terrific guy as well. So happy you got in the Hall of Fame yeah. finally because he deserved it. Oh, yeah. And I have a question. When you first heard about the potential merger, what were your thoughts? Um, I, we kind of knew it. I mean, that was one of the reasons I signed with the Pacers because they were financially stable enough. Um, you know, I signed with them three years before the merger occurred. But the whispering had already begun. And so that factored into my decision. Uh, to take a deal with, I was guaranteed all six years of my contract with the Pacers, um, and, and pretty lucrative for those days. Today, that's like chump change for these kids. But, but back then, and you know, the Bullets only offered three years guarantee. So I, I was crazy not to accept the Pacers' money, especially since they were financially stable and they were rumored, along with a couple of other teams, to be the ones that would uh, merge. So it all worked out. Definitely, definitely. And I saw you spent some time with the Kings and the Nets and the Knicks and the Bucks, and then you decided, like, hey, I think I'm ready to go to law school. Well, how did that come into your mind? <laughs> well, let me go back. I mean, I, and you talk about the merger. Unfortunately, I, I wrecked my knee oh. uh, in training camp that year that the teams had, that the leagues had merged. The year before that, um, you know, I averaged almost 15 points and 11 rebounds, and Thought I was going to have a terrific year in the NBA, and then I popped my ligaments uh, in training camp that year, and I only played six games because I had to wear this huge brace, and, and I couldn't lug that around, so I missed most of the season, if not all of it. Uh, and then after that, your damaged goods, and you know, I, I played with the Pacers for a while, contributed uh, with the team, but you know, and hurt my thumb uh, and tore ligaments in my thumb in that fifth year with the uh, Pacers. And when I finally got well, they had gotten somebody to take my place. So I was traded to Kansas City, which, you know, I helped them get to get to the playoffs that year. A young team, you know, had a con nice mix of uh, veteran players like Sam Lacey and others, but they were young. Phil Ford, Otis Birdsong, yeah. you know, guys like that, Scott Wedman. Um, and, you know, we, we gelled as a team. Uh, but I was a free agent after that. And, uh, wound up going to the Milwaukee Bucks and played behind Bob Lanier. Um, guys like Harvey Catchings played with Marcus Johnson, uh, Quinn Buckner, Brian Winters, Sidney Moncrief, of course, Junior Bridgman. We won 60 games that year, had a terrific year. And uh, after that year, my next year, I got traded to New Jersey uh, because they needed a center. 
and instead of being a backup, Don Nelson did me a favor and traded me the jersey, and I became a starting center again, finally. And, um, you know, and I played with two other guys, actually two Maryland guys, Albert King and Buck Williams, who were rookies. And so it was great. Every time we were announced at home and away, to have the announcers announce our names in the school we went to. So it was that center from the University of Maryland, that power forward from the University of Maryland, that small forward from the University of Maryland. <laughs> it, you know, Maryland, Maryland certainly got its due from the three yeah. of us that year. And, you know, we were a young team, as I said, started out 2-11, and 11, wound up winning 44 games, going to the uh, playoffs. So it, it was a great experience to, to see those guys grow. Uh, myself, a couple other veterans, and uh, and the young players. And I have so a question. Then, I have a question. So you brought up Sidney Montgomery. I've actually interviewed him uh, about a month ago. I was talking about his whole career. And the one question I asked him, and he still wasn't sure, and I was asking the same question: Why do you think so many, so few guards have won defensive, won defensive player of the year? Why so few guards have yes. won it? Yeah. Um, I, I think part of it is because, uh, you know, I think people factor in shot blocking. Uh, as a, a major part of defense. I mean, obviously a team with a shot blocker is probably uh, way up there in, in uh, field goal percentage defense. And so I suspect that that's, that's a metric that people use. And when you see a shot blocker there, uh, that, that's important. I mean, you see that happening in college as well. Uh, but when you get a guy like a Sidney Moncrief and others who can deny, who can um, – you know, become obstacles to great scorers. You have to bear that in mind. And, you know, Sid was one of the great, great defensive players at this time. Who is, the, who is the, your, your, your hardest assignment for somebody guarding you in your whole ABA and NBA career? Who guarded you the best? <laughs> There's a lot of God guys guarding me the best. I didn't get the ball that much. So. <laughs> you know, I, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a range of guys. No one guarded me best because I was never – first or second uh, option. So, you know, after you get to that point, there's no real solid defensive player. I mean, you're going to get nights where you score really well and a lot of nights where you're going to be the third, fourth, fifth scorer on the team. You know, my focus was defense and rebounding, and particularly with the Nets, those kind of facilitators. I played at the high post a lot. Buck Williams was down low. Um, I can tell you who presented the most difficulty for me uh, as a defensive player, and those are the big, strong guys, the artist Gilmores. Um, you know, obviously Kareem, there's no way that anybody could stop him, although, you know, I had some success against him by offensive rebounding because he didn't block out all that well. But, you know, there's no way that you could really have, have a, you know, an opportunity to do anything to stop him. I will say that there are guys, surprisingly, like a Bill Walton and others, who I really had no trouble with defensively. Uh, Bill Lambeer, people like that, um, you know, I, I kind of held my own and then some against guys like that. But, um, you know, big, strong guys, as I said, Artis Gilmore, it was so hard to get around him. Uh, I tried to do my best in that regard. Bob Lanier was another uh, big, strong center. I was an undersized center at 6'9", 235. You know, those guys were going 7'7", 270, and um, – Made it hard, but you know, I, I, I think I gained their respect. Yeah, <laughs> nothing else. And then, what have been your thoughts on the NBA bubble in Orlando? I think it's been going exceptionally well. Yeah, I, I think whoever devised the strategy and, and the tactics, uh, you know, ought to get a medal. And and you give the players a great deal of oh, yeah. uh, of credit for 
disciplining themselves and sticking to it. It just shows you that they really wanted to play. And, you know, basketball and, and the indoor game that it is and the way that they were able to uh, essentially set up that uh, almost um, sterile and, you know, I, I think that basketball lends itself to that. Uh, I'm not sure college can replicate it, though. See, that's the thing. Because, you know, college teams are in so many different places. And, you know, you never know what student athletes are doing, what their classmates are doing, even in schools that are teaching uh, purely remotely. Uh, so there, from that standpoint, I think it's a huge risk to play college sports at this moment in time. Um, you know, if you're going to take that balance, I, I would never, uh, would never imbalance the, the weight, the scales, yeah. by playing student-athletes uh, and giving them a chance to infect each other. Uh, it's, just, it's just not worth it. So do you think, it's, you think it's a mistake that the ACC, Big 12, and SEC have yet to cancel at least their football season? We don't even know about winter sports. Yeah, I, I think they're somewhat delusional, hopefully, that something's going to change. Um, you know, today, uh, which is August what is it, 21st, you heard the vice president, say that um, they're expecting a miracle to happen. Well, if you're waiting for a miracle, you've got a problem, okay? Uh, recognizing the realities of, of this pandemic. And I think that's what those conferences are doing. They're waiting for a miracle. You know, I take my hat off to uh, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten for, you know, making the making their position known right now and taking a, a controversial stance, but the protection of the student athlete is paramount. You know, yeah. it only takes one. Yep. It only takes one to get sick. And even if that individual doesn't die, if it has a career-threatening yeah. uh, residual when it's all said and done, you will have failed in your responsibility as a commissioner, as a coach, yep. as an athletic director. Yeah, and especially them saying they think it's just going to go away. These are the same people that said it's supposed to be gone by Easter, and by right. my count, it's past Easter. So, yeah. yeah. No, this is this is a revenue play, and, and oh, it's yeah. a shame that people are placing revenue ahead yep. uh, of the health and safety and success of student-athletes. Yeah, and then so so, so flipping over to your time going in, in, in uh, to post-grad, so how did you end up at Harvard? <laughs> um, sometimes I ask myself that, but – you know, for the most part, um, you know, I knew when I was playing for the Knicks, I, I could tell it was my knees hurting and, you know, I wasn't getting nearly as much time as, as I wanted. Um, I thought it was time to go. I still had another year left on my deal. So the summer before I got to New York, I uh, took the LSATs, uh, studied uh, and, and reviewed through, and I'll give a plug to Stanley Kaplan uh, during that time, reviewed, took the LSATs, did really well and applied to a number of law schools the following year. And, you know, in that uh, March and April period, I got accepted by just about everybody oh, cool. I applied to, Maryland, Georgetown, Howard, others like that. But, you know, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, challenged me. said, you know, you're going to these schools that you know you're going to get into. Why don't you, you know, take a flyer and, and try for something uh, and challenge yourself and try for the top schools? Uh, so Harvard was the one school that um, I thought, because I didn't want to go west to Stanford, but Harvard was a school that I thought, you know, maybe. And so after my application, we're playing the Celtics in the playoffs. Uh, I get a letter in the mail, the acceptance letter. And, 
you know, during the time we spent in Boston for a day or two, I decided to take the tea over to Cambridge and look around. And after looking through the library, looking at student life, looking at Harvard Square and what life would be like there, you know, I made up my mind that's where I was going to be the following year. I mean, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer okay. ever since I was a kid. Uh, remember, I grew up in that tumultuous time of civil rights yeah. and, and the civil rights struggle. The, the uh, war in Vietnam was raging, and I thought the law could, you know, have some positive social impact. And I used to watch Perry Mason and others, so I could be the voice for the power for the voiceless and, you know, provide power to the powerless. So that I kept that with me the whole time ever since I was. Yeah, that's so, got it. I lost you a little bit right after you were talking about Perry Mason. It kind of cut out. Yeah, I, I said that um, I I wanted to be kind of the voice yeah, for yeah. the voiceless and power for the powerless, and so. Uh, you know, I got accepted and I decided right then and there, this is the life for me. I'm, I'm done with uh, NBA life and let's start something new. Uh, and so, you know, the next semester I was there. Did you buy a Celtics hoodie? Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I used to go to, I used to go to Fenway wearing my Yankee cap and I would dare anybody to throw something on me. I stayed they true will, to my they, they will in Fenway. They'll throw it. They, they no, no, actually, they didn't. I really? would turn around and point. I'd turn around <laughs> and I would point to one guy. If I get hit with something, I'm blaming you. <laughs> That's awesome. So, I, you know, I still had these guns. Yeah. I have a question. Did you buy a Harvard sweatshirt? Because it's to my knowledge that 80% of the people that have Harvard sweatshirts didn't go there. Yeah, I have I have uh, Harvard Law School. Oh, cool! See, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I made the distinction. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that people that go there instead of buying a Harvard one, they'll buy a Yale one, just so people don't think, "Oh, you didn't go there." Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, Zach. I, I lost you. On. Oh, yeah. So I, I saw that you 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 became the ABA in Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean, an assistant district attorney is is one of many. I think they had over 200 oh, wow. assistant district attorney, but you know, we were prosecutors um, in my hometown of Brooklyn, New York. That's where I was born and raised uh, in part. And we moved to Queens. But Brooklyn is uh, where I wanted to you know, start my career as a trial attorney. I was a bit, a bit older than a lot of my classmates. And, you know, I didn't have time to go to a corporate firm, even though I was recruited by them, to sit and manage documents and, and you know, do mundane things. I, I had to kind of speed up my learning process, climb that steep learning curve as a trial attorney, which is what I wanted to be. So going to a DA's office gave me that opportunity. And, and the DA I worked for, Elizabeth Holtzman, uh, was a very progressive district attorney, um, you know, not a persecutor, but a prosecutor. Yeah. And she was about as fair as anybody in the nation. And so cool. I was happy to, to go to work for her. That's awesome. Then I saw soon soon after that you started a, you started a sports management company in Howard County. Um, yep, I was a uh, sports agent for about five years. All that time, I was also prior to becoming a sports agent, I was uh, I became a TV broadcaster. But uh, yeah, I started that because I've heard so many stories. And being an ex-player who's a lawyer, so many people come to you with these uh, horror stories about being defrauded 
and, and otherwise um, exploited by agents. Yeah. And so from that standpoint, I thought I could add something uh, with my expertise. And, you know, we were great. We had seven first-round picks, uh, awesome. a number of high picks in the NFL, Olympic. We had a couple of Olympic gold medal winners uh, in our um, stable. But the problem was that business got so dirty. And I was not about to stoop to conquer. I wasn't going to break rules and pay players and do the things many of my uh, many of my competitors were doing. Yeah. Uh, and in order to remain competitive, I would have to do that. So I decided it was time to get out of the business after five years. I have a question. So I hear uh, a lot, tons of times, professional athletes get all these crazy pitches. And I'm sure they came to you and said, hey, should I invest in this? What's the craziest thing somebody you represented said, hey, do you think this is a good idea? Um, it, it wasn't crazy, but it just turned out to be uh, something that I, I thought ultimately was a, was a scam. And that was uh, animal husbandry, particularly with horses, where you, you chip in and you put money into a, a horse stud farm. Uh, you know, you have these champions that would go to stud, match with mayor, with mares, and, um, you know, the, the, the product of that. Uh, with supposedly great great gene lines, and they would become champions. And that costs a lot of money. Yeah. And I had a couple of guys who were approached by that. Um, they ultimately lost it because, you know, I told them not to. Uh, we never allow our guys to do it. And, again, I didn't handle anybody's money, so, you know, it, it wasn't me that gave them the yeah. ultimate permission, but I gave them uh, a warning not to. But one of them did, and ultimately lost uh, a lot of money. He's since recovered, but nevertheless, okay. that was crazy. That's um, wild. Yeah, some people make money off it, but I didn't yeah. think, you know, unless you had the full knowledge, yeah. I didn't think that that was something to, to yeah. be involved in. But, unless you're like yeah, a triple, you're right. triple crown winner, you might make some money. Other than that, it's going to be a little difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's kind of what they offered yeah. um, or they promised that champions would mate and, um, you know, they'd come up with a, a – a, child of a champion uh, but it, it didn't work out that way not at least with these folks that's interesting so you were doing that at the same time you were doing broadcasting um yeah not when i was an agent uh but after before and after uh matter of fact i became an agent right after um uh, Vern lundquist and i called the duke kentucky game 1992 the leitner shot uh we called that game and uh, pretty soon after that, I decided to uh, you know hang out my shingle as an agent, and to avoid accusations of conflict of interest, uh, I decided to give up my TV career. Of course, five years later, I was fortunate enough to be rehired yeah. uh, by ESPN and then CBS once again to get back in the saddle. Until uh, the last, till about three years ago, when you know ESPN decided yeah. to part ways, they thought maybe I was I wasn't young and fresh enough as some of these other guys who knows but that's yeah. that's their thinking yeah um still currently working uh with fox so oh, cool you know i've got a couple more years that i think you know i can do this i'm not going to do it forever and, you know my hope is that i can leave a positive mark yeah at what point during this year did you know the ncw tournament wasn't going to happen um i had a feeling in um in late February, early March, um, you know, and then of course, as I'm at home, uh, I hear that the ACC right in mid tournament decided to shut it down. And that's when I knew I said, this thing is over. Uh, 
Uh, but prior to that, you didn't really know the extent of it because once again, uh, you know, many of these, these conferences were deluding themselves that they could continue uh, when in fact the, the spread of the virus uh, was starting to peak. And there was no way that they're going to keep people in the arenas, let alone play uh, in front of empty crowds, but, you know, no safeguards against uh, young men and, and even the young women spreading it among themselves. Uh, they came to their senses and ended it real quick. Then I have a question. So you have a, bit, a large background in, 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 in law. What kind of what kind of penalty? I'm trying to think of the good terminology. If if college sports go through this year with the virus going on and the, with all these players that are considered student athletes, not really being paid for their services, and one of them contracts the virus and say gets relatively ill, what type of legal ramifications could it be against the NCAA? Well, the word you want to use is liability. Liability. And I don't know if it's necessarily against the NCAA because the NCAA in football, NCAA people, people don't realize and they get this wrong. The NCAA doesn't have any real power over football money or distribution. They certainly are involved with eligibility rules um, and the way that the institutions uh, interact with each other. Uh, but when it comes to revenue and distribution, that's a whole different story. The conferences control that through the CFP. Uh, and the same thing in, in college basketball, NCAA has control. Now, when you talk about liability, obviously, despite these waivers that they're hanging in front of the kids' faces and the parents' faces, you know, there's no way that they can guarantee based on particularly those who don't have regular students coming to school and it's just uh, the players, again, you can make a case that they place revenue ahead of the health and safety uh, of these young people. I mean, that's a great story. I think right now plaintiff's lawyers are sitting at the door waiting for some of these conferences to open the door by having some kids come down with it uh, and, you know, open the door to lawsuit. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a tricky and, and, and perilous uh, trek that these conferences are about to walk down if, in fact, they allow football to be played and then basketball itself, unless, you know, there's a demonstration that the, the virus has dissipated, which I don't think we're going to see that for a while. Do you think if, they, if the NCAA did a series of, like, bubble tournaments, that could be a way to get some games done, or do you think they should just postpone it to next year? I mean, if, if in fact they want to change it around and do bubble tournaments, but I'm not sure. Again, they're trying to resurrect some type of television uh, revenue, uh, you know, media rights, et cetera. It's because they certainly aren't going to be able to have fans come in. So, yeah, I mean, they, they probably could do that, but the amount of revenue that they gain from it, I'm not sure it's appreciable. Um, you know, what it should do is make every institution – uh, as members of the NCA, rethink their financial models. Um, oftentimes, the athletic departments are operating as independent businesses, which I think is a big mistake. Um, you know, the rest of the school has, you know, some type of either insurance or they have some type of um, some some type of plan to, uh, you know, uphold their debt <coughs> and to be able to pay off their debt. Uh, to get loans, et cetera. But the independence of, of the athletic departments put them in, in, in uh, bad shape. So, you know, rethinking the athletic department, once again, making it part of the institution as opposed to an independent P3 
piece of the institution might be a better way to go going forward. Do you, do you think we'll soon see players being able to benefit off their likeness and if, and for that reason kind of give them more control over their decisions in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it should have happened a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, and I can't believe even after the O'Bannon case yeah. about six years ago that NCAA didn't have the foresight to see that name, image, and likeness was going to be a thing. Yeah. It's a property right. Yeah. It's something that you can't give away no. uh, for nothing. Now, that's a lot different than pay for play. Of course. You get paid to play the game, uh, which I think, you know, would ruin the the games themselves, and we can get into a whole discussion about that another time. But but name, image, and likeness is something that's in a long time coming. Now, certainly you need guardrails uh, to make sure that schools don't exploit the athletes, uh, don't use it as a recruiting tool, uh, et cetera, to keep the playing field level from a competition standpoint. But there's no question that uh, student athletes should have the right to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been super interesting and a lot of fun. And I wanted to just thank you again for chatting and for people that aren't following you on social media, how can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I don't I talk about sports now and then, but you know, I have more social commentary. Remember I'm, I'm a senior lecturer at Columbia university. Yeah. I teach a course among others, athlete activism, and social justice. And oh, cool. uh, you know, I speak to that, but my Twitter handle is pretty simple at Lynn Elmore. Hey, there we go. That's awesome. That's really interesting. And then and speaking of that, have you, have you liked what you've seen over the past few months with all sort of seeing these young people kind of standing up for what they believe in and it's kind of against injustice that we've seen across the country? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, athlete activism is not a new thing. I mean, we can trace it back to post-Civil War uh, in many ways. You know, athletes, particularly black athletes, based upon their experience and the experience of black people in America, have been activists uh, for social justice in their own way. You can go all the way up through, you know, Tommy Smith and, um, and John Carlos and beyond that, Ali, uh, all the way to, to Colin Kaepernick um, and, and recognize that, you know, the platforms are, have, have multiplied. Yeah. Uh, the uh, seriousness that people take athletes has, has deepened. And so now these young people today, you know, they, they're, kind of reached the peak with regard to uh, having their voices resonate uh, and the number of platforms that they can utilize to speak out. Um, and, and they recognize that to them, uh, mo much is given and so much is to be expected from them in that effort. So I am definitely pleased to see it and I'm hopeful that more comes about. Just remember, true activists though are the ones who place themselves uh, in a position where they're going to sacrifice something for the cause. And we can see Colin Kaepernick has yeah. already done that. Maya Moore has done that. Yep. Um, you know, you might see others because that's when people take you most seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's been fantastic. But I just wanted to thank you again for just chatting. I'm glad all is well. Hopefully we can get this virus under control. Hopefully people can start wearing masks across the board. I don't know why it's taken some people so long, but this has been super interesting and a lot of fun. And I really wanted to thank you again for taking time to chat. Sure, my pleasure. Good luck.
that we got plenty of time.